So we're, we're continuing through uh, the gospel according to John, the, visible made, the invisible made visible. I'm going to first start out by just reading from our passage this morning. Um, John chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 35 through 41 this morning. Um, <clears throat> so if you don't have a Bible, please make sure you get one. We've got some f- available for you next to the sound booth there. So please take one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to keep it. We want you to leave it. Everybody should have a Bible. We want you to keep it once you to, to have it and to read it. Um, if you are in that Bible this morning, um, we're going to be on page uh, 766. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have, you would have no guilt. But now you say we see, your guilt remains. Uh, let me just pray one more time before we uh, ex- expose the scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your, your word. We thank you that you have not kept yourself a mystery from us, but you did come, the invisible made visible. You came to earth in the, in the form of man in Jesus Christ. And you've made known the great mystery of the gospel to us. And because of that, we can be saved. So I pray, Lord, this morning as we open your Bible, as we, as we read and, and learn from your word, that it would, it would cause transformation in our hearts, that it's the gospel that saves and that saving power would be unleashed here this morning in our hearts. It would change and transform us. So please, as, as we uh, listen, as we hear, as we uh, just um, grapple with a text, that uh, we would come to spiritual sight and see you a new facet of the gospel, see you for who you are, beautiful and, and worthy of praise and worship. In this is the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So with that, let me uh, go ahead and dismiss the children to Children's Church. And uh, the teachers as well, thankful for that program. Our kids get to hear about, about Jesus as well. So a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, when, uh, when Pastor Lou was, was here, uh, we were last in this text, he, he preached on primarily the, the miracle, the first miracle that happens. I'm going to make a case this morning that there's actually two miracles that happen in this text. But he preached on, preached on the first miracle. Uh, this, this man who was born blind has new sight because of what Jesus has done. And, his, and, uh, and we see that, he did, that Jesus does that in response to the question that is posed by his disciples, right? So uh, they, they come up to him in verse, in verse 2, verse 1 and 2, they say, What's the cause for this man's blindness? Is it because his, of his sin, or is it because of his parents' sin? And that, that, was the, that gives you an idea of what was the prevailing thought of the day. The prevailing opinion was... That any suffering that, that transpired, uh, any dis- disability, those kind of things were all because of sin that was in the person's life or they were being affected by a sin in, in their parents' or uh, parents' life or generations before them. But Jesus kind of, he bucks that, 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 that option and he, and he gives them a, a third option that they weren't able to see. And he says, he said in verse 3 that it's neither, right? Neither, but the works of God, that the works of God might be displayed in him, in this man. So it's then in that point that 
he gets down to the, next to the man, and he spits with some mud, and, and he kind of creates this cake. This, he creates this, this mud, and he places it in, in this, this man's eyes. And then he tells him to go. Sends him to the pool of Siloam and says, go and wash. Um, and this man, he just simply obeys Jesus. He, he gets up and he walks. He doesn't know really what's going on, probably. And we don't know if he gets there himself or if he's got some assistance from somebody. John doesn't really tell us this in the, in the passage. But he gets there and he washes and then he comes back and he's got sight, right? He's got, can, can you imagine that? I mean, he's, he has complete healing right then and there. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no uh, uh, progressive eyesight coming back. There's, his brain and his eyes are working in conjunction right away the way that they should without any progressive therapy or, or focal therapy, and he's got complete healing. But as incredible as this, as this sign, this wonder, this healing is, the real life change for this man is still yet to happen. That's what we're going to get to this morning. That's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to look at the text this morning, uh, and we're going to look under three headings. Um, we're going to look under the Inquisition, uh, the Son of Man, and the Miracle. So starting out first with the Inquisition. Let's start there. Turn in our text. We're going to be uh, in verses 8 through 12 first. Um, after the man receives his sight, he comes back and he's looking for Jesus. The first person he looks for is, is the one who, who gave him sight. And Jesus is not there. Right? Doesn't, he, he slips back into the crowd, right? And he's, remember, this is, this is feast time in Jerusalem. So there's uh, crowds of people everywhere. And Jesus kind of just uh, slipped back into the crowds. So the first people who do notice him, though, as he gets back, are his neighbors, people that are, are there every day who see him in the streets sitting and, and begging each day. And they're kind of whispering among themselves, you know, is, is, this, is this the one that was, that was blind that we see every day blind? And, and so I'm sure he's hearing these things, you know, and, and then he's, he's pretty ecstatic and says, yeah, I'm, I'm him, I'm the man. And when they ask him, how is it that you can see now? And he's, the only answer he can give is that Jesus Jesus is the one who, who told them to go and wash. Put mud in my eyes, told me to wash. I went and did that, and I came back with my sight. So, so now we've got this, this, this man who's, who's no longer in darkness. Imagine that. He was in darkness his entire life, physical darkness, can't see anything. It's, it's dis, disorienting. You know, for us, when, we, when we're in, in darkness, I mean, I don't know if, you, if, if any of you have ever been in complete darkness before, but it's a little disorienting, right? It's a little frightening when you can't see around you. And, and so this is what this, is, this guy has been going through every day of his life. You know, and along with that, there's the, you know, a lack of balance. You know, he can't, can't quite get around all that well. So he's probably, probably lounging around for most of his life, sitting down. Maybe he's kind of hunched a little bit, or maybe his, maybe his muscles are a little bit atrophied from not being able to get around on his own very well. Uh, maybe he's got some sores, some bed sores, those kind of things. I mean, we don't, we don't really know for sure, but I mean, con- consider that, that that's a possibility, that that. that, that this is this man's state prior to the healing, but now we can see. So uh, it's, it's amazing. So he says, yes, I'm, he confirms that he is the man, and the next thing you know, he's being ushered, he's being led into the Pharisees, you know, for an interview. And then we're looking, and that's in verses 13 through 17, we see this happening. So this guy's receiving more attention than he's ever received in his entire life, right? And the first place to take him is to the religious leaders, 
Now let's 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 go. Let's take you for an interview. But it really turns out to be more of an inquisition uh, than it is uh, an, a simple interview. And as it's going along, we're going to see that we find that the real person on trial here in this inquisition is not the beggar himself, but it ends up being Jesus. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Is he? Um, is he who he says he is? So we look at, let's look at verse 16. It's, uh, we see here that even before they try to even verify whether this, this healing is legitimate, whether, it's, whether it's, it's genuine, they attack Jesus right away. And they say in verse 16, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others, but others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a, a, a division among them. So not coincidentally, Jesus had chosen to heal this man on a Sabbath day, which is a big no-no, according to Pharisaic law. Not, not according to God's law, but according to their own man-made regulations and laws that they actually <laughs> supplanted the, the real law and put their own on top of it. So at this point, you can see that many of them have already set their sights against Jesus. They set their hearts against Jesus. So, and remember, this is, this is around the third year of Jesus' ministry. So we're, we're, we're honing in now. Calvary is just, is just a few months away, right? So we see now opposition to Jesus mounting. His public ministry is, has been in, around for three years, and now there's opposition mounting, and we're seeing it here playing out. So now the Pharisees, because of all this is happening, because of this man's statements, are having to deal with the question the Jesus dilemma. That's what they're, they're having to come to the conclusion about the identity of Jesus. Is, is he really an authorita- authoritative teacher from God? And is his power, is his healing power really coming from God or, or is it coming from somewhere else? So it's, but we see that only after the beggar calls Jesus a prophet in verse 17, that's where we finally see that they're, they're, they're really want to see if, if this is legitimate or if he's just making some, some bold statements that Jesus is a prophet. <clears throat> In verses 18 through 23, that's, that's where we see that happening. So that statement is really what compels them to investigate a little bit more the le- legitimacy of the healing itself. So before they took his, 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 uh, this man's testimony, almost at face value, really, I mean, you could see that. But now... Their authority is, now that their authority is being called into question because Jesus is being called a prophet, they're having to, uh, to really deal with this. So at this point, they, that's where they, they bring in the, the, the man's parents, right? To, to prove uh, whether or not this is really the man who he says he is. Is he really blind from birth? And we find that this, these parents here are really of no help to, to anybody in the situation. They're no help to their son. They're really no help to the Pharisees. Uh, they, they go as far as to confirm, yeah, this is my son. He was born blind, but beyond that, they don't really have any other answers. They're not willing to say that it was, yes, Jesus was the one who, who healed him. In fact, you could see them, they're, they're kind of pushing off of, pushing the, uh, any kind of um, responsibility off of themselves onto this man. They say, in ver- like in verse 21, we could see it says, ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. So we don't really have to wonder why they did that. Uh, John is, is helpful here, and he gives us a little bit of an insight of what's going on. He gives us a little side note that says that they were just completely terrified of the Pharisees in verse 22. They were terrified because they knew 
that the Pharisees, as the religious, religious leaders in the society, they had the ability, they had the power, possessed the power to be able to uh, ostracize those who didn't keep the law according to their standards of the law. You know, anybody who resisted their authority was ostracized from, from the synagogue. They were, they were thrown out of the synagogue, meaning the place, the center of all Jewish community, you know, of worship and of work. So, which is a very shameful situation to be in, not having, not being able to be involved in community. So, you can see that the religious leaders here have already made an executive decision based on what, what it says here in the, in the notes here, what, what John gives us as a note, that anybody who, who confessed Jesus to Christ was going to be thrown out of the synagogue. And that's what they were afraid of. They were, being, they were afraid of being thrown out. So the, the beggars, uh, the parents here, they, they really are, have some insight as to what's really going on here. I mean, they're not asked explicitly to say whether or not Jesus is, uh, is the Messiah, but they can, they, they're gathering that if they were to give any credit to Jesus as the healer, that that could be construed as claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's what they're, they're trying to avoid. So let me just pause there in the story for a moment. And just make this point, I think, that John is trying to make is in this passage. It's really the center of the passage. I think it's the center of the, of the book, uh, his entire book. And it's the center of the scriptures themselves. That it really matters what you believe about Jesus. It really matters what you believe about who Jesus is, who, what, his identi- what his identity is. So... I want to encourage you, if you haven't already read through this book, and, and, and for me, this has been a great series. This has been really uh, going back to the text, going, to, to going through the Gospels, reading the text. It's been, it's been exhilarating you know, to see, to see if, it's been your, if it's your first time to see Jesus for the first time. It, it's, it's amazing. If, even as a Christian for many years, reading this, it should be revealing more about who Jesus is. So I encourage you to, to, to read through that with us. Go through the series if you haven't listened to them previous to this. But I want to point out, in this passage that Jesus is going to reveal more about himself, about what it means to be the Son of Man. That's the title that he uses here about himself uh, in verses 35 and 36. So I want to look at what it means to be the Son of Man and what Jesus is revealing about himself using that title. And it sounds like an unassuming title, the Son of Man, but it, it actually has some, some real weight to it. It's a, it's a messianic title. Uh, it, it actually refers to implicitly to an Old Testament scripture, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel being a, a prophet, one of the prophets that um, was given a, a special prophecy of God in, in chapter 7. That's what I want to read from here. So let me read from that so you can kind of get an idea as to what, what is understood as the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that is the God of Israel, the God of the universe, the only God, um, the, the, the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his hair on his, on his head was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So here we're getting a glimpse that Daniel's given a glimpse by God into the future. He's giving a glimpse into the end of days when God will return in judgment 
and before him all the world will stand vulnerable, vulnerable before him in judgment. And here he's called the Ancient of Days, and that, ref- that, that referring to his eternality, that he existed from, from, uh, from eternity past to eternity future, no beginning, no end. It refers to his transcendence, that he is above all, that he created, his sovereignty. He's, he's sitting on a throne, he's ruling. So, and there's some just real incredible imagery going on here. Being clothed in white as snow, his hair on his head was pure like wool. And then notice the one that really stands out is that he's sitting on a fiery throne, right? And that there's, there, there's actually flames that are being that produced that are coming out from the throne. So that we see here that's, that that's not the only place where we, we have reference to that happening. You know, we look in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 4, and then we even see it in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says that our God is a consuming fire. And that referring to his judgment, his wrath, his, is kindled toward those who are in willful rebellion against him, against his authority. So, skipping down now to verses 13 and 14 in Daniel, and that's on our slide this morning. Um, we can reread now where it comes, the Son of Man comes into play. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here we see the Son of Man there, that, that title being used here. And it, it wasn't a popular use of the, of the term for the Messiah in his day, but anybody who heard it, any Jew who had heard it, kn- knew and understood what it referred to. They knew that it referred to the Christ, that it was referring to the Messiah. And this is Jesus' one of his favorite terms to use for himself. We see him using it here in this, in this passage. And there's, it is actually used before this, earlier in John as well, as a title for himself. But the question is now, what does it mean? So what I want to do is I want to show from this passage in Daniel, but also in our passage this morning in John 9, uh, a little bit about what what we can gather from that, what, God, what Jesus is revealing about himself when he's using the term, um, when he's using the term son of man. So I'm just, there's, there's several different understandings, different ideas about what son of man means and other implications, but I just want to focus on three of them this morning. The first one being that the son of man has a unique relationship with God. So he's got, the son of man has got a, a unique, unfettered access to the majesty, the majestic, the holy God of the universe. That while everybody else stands trembling, or probably doesn't stand, but falls trembling to their feet in terror because of, of the holiness of God and, and for fear of his judgment, the Son of Man, on the other hand, can boldly present himself before, uh, before, God, before the God of the universe, as it says here. So, that's, and that's what Jesus is saying about himself. That's what John wants us to, to know about Jesus, that he has that kind of unique relationship with God, that he is, he is the only one that is without sin, that he is perfectly obedient to the laws of God. And John states this really from the very outset of his, of his gospel, right, about Jesus. In, in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the, the Word was with God, and the Word, that is Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here we see that it's, that it's referring explicitly to Jesus being present at creation, present with God the Father even before creation, and that he is the agent of creation. He is the one who created all things, and all things are subjected to him, and he is the life, he's the source of life to all things in the universe. So you've, you might have heard this phrase before, um, and I knew that Shakespeare was going to come in handy at some point in my life, um, but you've probably heard this, this phrase being used that some are born great, some achieve greatness, and th- some have greatness thrust upon them. You probably heard that term before or that, that saying. Well, Jesus is not one who ha- will have greatness thrust upon him. He is great. He is mighty. He is, he is, the, uh, he is the, the sovereign of the universe. And that's, that's what John is trying to sh- show here is that he is confirming by, as an eyewitness, Jesus' own claims about himself. That he is the almighty God of the universe, the eternal exist, existing God who created all things. And he is, he is the one who has all might and all power. And the, he is the one who is worthy of worship. So as God, Jesus can approach God the Father in ancient days here, as it says, because he is eternally existent with God from eternity past. Um, God the Father, God the Son, God the, the, the Spirit, the, and, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity being present before the world was created. So nobody else can make that, that claim. That's what's going on here. Nobody else can make that audacious claim that, that they are worthy to approach God because of the sin that is within our hearts, because of the sin that we've inherited from the moment that we are conceived, as da- David says in, in, in the Psalms. And because of that sin, you know, I, I want to I move on to the next point about what we find out about um, who the Son of Man is. Um, and that is that he... The Son of Man is the ultimate and final revelation of God. So notice here that I didn't say that Jesus is the revealer of God, that he reveals, he's a re, somehow re, a, a revealer among many, but he is the, rep, the, the actual representation, exact imprint of his nature, the perfect res, representation, and the revelation of God. The author of Hebrews says it this way, which is very, very uh, similar to the way that John opens his gospel. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, son, his son being Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the entire world. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what we see here is that the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that at various times throughout history, God has used different ways to communicate to humanity. He used Abraham. He used the prophets. He even used nature in some, in some respect, not a, in a saving way, but in a general sense, about who he is, that, that he is present. But in these last and most recent and most final and clearest revelation of himself is seen in Jesus Christ, seen in, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man. So all other forms of, uh, that have come before him, uh, all other kind of media alone in themselves are insufficient. And because of that, because they were insufficient, God himself came to earth. 
Last week, uh, Pastor Perry Jones, he, he, uh, he preached on 1 Peter chapter 5, and he talked about uh, how the most, um, <clears throat> the, the, the greatest or act of humility came in the incarnation, that is in, in Jesus coming in the flesh. And it was in the, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross that he revealed himself to the earth and humility. And so th- this very act of, of coming in the flesh and walking among us, we have been, as John says, we've been invited to gaze into the, his glory. His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in, in Jesus, in, this, in, in coming to earth, he humbled himself so that he could come and make plain to us the dire condition of our hearts, going back to the, the sin problem. So the truth is that Jesus tells us the truth about our situation. He tells us the truth that we live in the shadow of sin and that we're daily seeing the inevitable consequences of our sins. In part, here, you know, we, see, we see that it deeply affects us more than we are willing to admit or, or see and, and even admit. So we see it happening maybe in, in our hearts, you know, in our minds, I should say. We see it happening, affecting our, our psychology. It affects our emotions, right? Sin affects our relationships with, well, one, first with God, but also with one another. Uh, it even, we even see as the, as the earth and all that's around us that it decays, that it is, that is also because of the taint of sin that we live in on a daily basis. So getting back now to the story, we run. Where where did the the Pharisees go wrong? How how is it that they were not able to see Jesus as He is, as the Son of Man? I mean, these are the people who were the religious leaders that they had the law, and and they were the ones who knew the law better than anybody else, right? So why is it that they could not recognize that Jesus was the Son of Man that He claimed to be? And I want to just give you one word, and that is. Authority, okay? Which brings us to the next characteristic, the third characteristic of the Son of Man. So far, we've, we've talked about how the Son of Man has a re- unique relationship with God, how the Son of Man is the unique and final revelation of God, and then thirdly, having to do with authority, the Son of Man is given authority to rule and to reign and to judge all the peoples of the earth. So, biblical scholar D.A. Carson, he sheds a little bit of light on what's going on within the Pharisees, why they were not able to recognize what was going on. He sums it up this way, quote, Jesus himself is the word incarnate, the one who uniquely reveals God. We just learned that, right? Indeed, in the context of chapter 9, the fundamental conflict is between the view that Jesus must be interpreted in terms of the law, the law as understood by the Pharisees, and that the view that Jesus is the ultimate divine self-disclosure by whom and through whom the deepest significance of the law must be discerned, end quote. So what I think what, what Carson here is, is driving at uh, in this passage, and as, as he's trying to shed some light on what's going on with the Pharisees, is that the Pharisees were using the law, uh, as they understood it, to really justify and to protect their own authority. So rather than bending to the authority of Jesus, if he is who he says he is, uh, and really, if he is who he says, then, then he has God's authority. So rather than submit to Jesus' authority, 
rather than submit to God's authority, they instead worked extra hard to find ways that they can maintain their own authority, right? So rather than bend to the scriptures that they knew, that they had, that they had learned, they had actually memorized, they, actually, they instead, they, they bent the scriptures to justify their own wicked desires for, for self-control, for authority. While, at, while this is going on, the actual word of God in the flesh is standing right in front of them, and they, and they completely miss it, right? They completely miss what is going on in front of them. Uh, do you remember the Bereans in, in Acts chapter 17? I want to kind of use this as, a, as an illustration to show that what's really going on here, the difference between really understanding and investigating the scriptures and coming to the realization that Jesus is the word of God and, and, and their refusal, which is what's happening here. So in, in Acts chapter 17, we see that the Bereans were this, this group of people uh, that when, when Paul and Silas are, are going in, in, on their missionary journeys throughout Asia and throughout um, the world at the time, they knew, and they are proclaiming the gospel. And they come to these Bereans who are so enthralled to hear the gospel, it's almost too good for them to be true that they're, they're examining the scriptures. They're examining what Paul is saying by the scriptures to verify whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. And, and having seen that and hear, hearing the gospel and, seeing and, and, and recognizing what the scriptures have to say about him, they believe the gospel. And, and they go as far as to actually protect the deposit of the gospel that, that, that is preached to them by helping Paul and Silas get out when some Jewish agitators are coming in trying to try and take them out. So that's what's going on with the Bereans, but that's not what's happening here with the Pharisees. That's what I want to point out is that the sacrificial and ceremonial law that they were keeping, that they were guard to keep, and that they were uh, holding over the rest of Jerusalem and, and, and the Jewish society there, that along with what they're seeing happen to this beggar uh, when he is healed of his blindness, all, all of that is pointing to a single direction. It's all pointing to Jesus and that Jesus is the light of the world and that he is the bread of life. He is the stream of living water, as he says. He is the unique son of God. He is the unique son of man and he is the great law giver himself who had given them the law the fulfillment of all the types and shadows and all that was told about uh, him in the Old Testament and he's standing in front of them and yet what we see happening is that in their dark, sinful, rebellious hearts they just completely refuse to accept it. So they're not doing a thorough investigation of scriptures. They're instead just refusing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God as as it is the scriptures are plainly showing them. And that's, I want to leap away for a second and just ask, is anybody here this morning doing the same thing? No. Is, is it made, has it been made clear to you who Jesus is, and instead of surrendering to his authority, are you trying to maintain and cling and hold on to control of your own life, rather than bow to the Lord who, uh, who is uh, who owns everything, right? And, and, and every, who owns the world and everything in it. I just wanted to ask that f- briefly. Let it not be so. So moving on, like I said before, what we're finding is that the inquisition that's happening here is really all about Jesus. It's not about this beggar. It's about Jesus and who he is. He's on trial. And this poor guy instead is being used in the same way that they were using the, the woman caught in adultery in chapter 8 
they're using for using these people, this, this man that uses this woman in chapter 8, really for their own reasons, and that is to exert their own authority over the, God's authority. And what they don't realize is that there are, there are eternal, eternal ramifications for that. So the Pharisees aren't really simply failing to determine that God is, that Jesus is the Son of Man. They're actually wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly refusing to believe the evidence that's standing right in front of them. And that's true of us today. You know, as, as image bearers of God but have been marred by sin and who are uh, not eager to leave our darkness, able to, wanting to stay in our sin-saturated lives, uh, we, we do the same thing. Right? As John, as John says uh, in his, in Jesus says in, in John chapter 3, that the people, people of the world love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3.19. So just so there's no ambiguity there, what Jesus goes on to say that, that not only do we just, uh, we avoid the light, but actually we know it's there and we hate the light. That those in darkness hate the light. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say the same thing in, in his book, uh, in, in his uh, letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 3. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one sings after God, all have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, and not even one. And he goes on to say, say more and more and more very hard and difficult and sad things about our condition. So I'll stop, at, I'll stop there and just go on to say that as a result of our willingness to rebel against God, we are liable to the Son of Man who is judge of all people. That's our condition. And, like, and unlike the judgment that we see happening to this man, this unjust judgment that's happening to him before the, the Pharisees, when he's being thrown out and cast out of the assembly, what we see actually is that Jesus' judgment is f- much more frightening because it's legitimate justice against the guilt that we all have as sinners. Look at verse 39 in our, in our chapter this morning, uh, 939. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see me, who do not see, may see, and that those who see may become blind. So what, he's, what Jesus is saying here is that his work in the world will inevitably compel some people to saving faith and it's going to compel other people to go actually the opposite direction to sink further into darkness and then eventually into eternal judgment. And that initially sounds a little bit contradictory if, if, you, if you go back to chapter 3 where Jesus says after one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen and amen, right? And he goes on to say, for God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So there it says that Jesus is not being sent in the world to condemn the world, but in our chapter and verse here this morning, in John 9, 39, it's Jesus saying, well, I, I came for judgment. So that, is, that, is that a contradiction? Is that what's going on here? Is there a contradiction in what, in, uh, what Jesus is communicating? And my answer is no, because if you go on to read the next verse in John 3, it says, whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus as the son, is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So it sounds a lot like our verse this morning. If you don't believe, if you believe, you are not condemned. If you, if you don't believe, then you are condemned already. <clears throat> uh, biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce put it this way, which I think is, is pretty helpful. That Jesus is not say, he says, quote, Jesus is not saying here that he has come to execute judgment. Rather, his presence and activity in the world themselves constitute a judgment as they compel men and women to declare themselves either for or against him, as they range, or that is, as they position themselves on the one side or on the other side. Those who position themselves against him are judged already, according to John three eighteen, because not because they had passed judgment, Jesus had passed judgment on them, but because they had already passed judgment on themselves, end quote. And so it is as we, as we see that there's mingled in Jesus' mission to save sinners, to save the lost, is also judgment toward those who are going to refuse his grace, right? They have cast judgment on themselves because they have already refused the grace of God. So to the beggar that was healed of his blindness, we're going to see that, he, that the, Jesus' work is the work of newness of life, and glorious life, but on the other hand, we see that to the Pharisees, that God's work through Jesus Christ, Jesus' work, is actually the stench of death. So there's two very different ways of responding. And so it is really with the gospel today. The same gospel that was proclaimed there in, in the scriptures then is also the same power of God to save sinners today. And for some, it's salvation to new life, and to others, it's a damning evidence to those who are going to not believe, that are going to, uh, that are going to refuse to believe. And that's where we see the gospel actually forms a, div- a division. And that's the warning that Jesus is trying to give here, is that his gospel causes division. He's warning this, the, the Pharisees at the end of, of this chapter that even after they had witnessed the miracle, they're still persistently rejecting the need for any healing of their spiritual blindness, even as the light is standing in front of them. And instead, what they decide to do is they intend, intend to mock Jesus in verse 40 when they say, are we also blind? And what, what he's really saying there, what, the gist of the remark is, yeah, don't try to paint us, Jesus, um, as being spiritually blind. In fact, your metaphor doesn't work on us. It doesn't work on us. But, but uh, actually, if anything, they're saying that, that as a spiritually informed and mature, we have 20-20 vision. So don't tell us that we're blind. That's what he's saying. That's what they're saying to Jesus. And, and here, we get a chance to see in verse 41 where Jesus is giving really, uh, pinpointing the, and giving us insight into what's going on in the hearts of the, of the Pharisees. He says in verse 41, really pretty much as it comes down to, boils down to, is that you don't even realize how blind you are. You claim to see clearly, but really, that's only evidencing the fact that your desire is to continue in your darkness, right? Rather than coming to the healing power of the light. And so, he says, you remain guilty in your sins. And that's, it's frightening, really, if you think about just how deeply, at this point, they have sunk into the realm of spiritual darkness. It's scary deep. Right, it's it's to hell's doorstep, deep. That's how that's how how close they are, and that they're headed for eternal destruction if they don't surrender to the lordship of the Son of Man. 
But here's where, here's where I get to tell you the good news, the gospel. I'm going to turn now to the miracle, right? The miracle here is that, in the, in the miracle of this passage, I said earlier there was two miracles. This is the real miracle that, that I, I want to really highlight this morning is that, that there's a mir- miraculous work of regeneration that happens in this, in this beggar's heart. So when the Pharisees had no more need for him, when they had used him and abused him for their own reasons, and they, they cast him out, and now this, this man is really, in a, in, in a way, really worse off than he was before. I mean, he can see now, but now he's worse in that um, he's ostracized from Jewish community, he, from the place of worship, from the place of community, from the place of work. And, he did, and, and now he doesn't even really even have that, that one thing, that handicap that was, that was allowing him to make a living for himself, from the pity, from the, from the, from, from the, uh, the kindness of, of others giving him money. He doesn't even have that to work with anymore. In fact, we don't even hear anything else about his parents either after this. Uh, we don't know really what happens to them. Maybe they're, they're probably facing the same fear of, of being cast out that he was, uh, and they, maybe they did, they split town. And so it's at this point, it's at this point that we see Jesus pursuing the man at his deepest. The word must have gotten around pretty quickly, you know, it being, again, being feast time, hearing about what happened to this man, his him being healed and now being cast out, and it makes its way, the news makes its way to the ears of Jesus. Right? He hears him, and it says that Jesus, when he had heard it, he looked for him. And he looked him, and he, and he found him. And he approaches him, the man, who had not seen him, and he asks him a question that sounds like it's kind of out of left field, but he says in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man. But really, it's, it's not so much a strange question, really, when you consider what had erupted earlier in the Inquisition, right? Uh, an argument over who's, who Jesus was, his identity. And the consensus among the Jewish leaders, the, the religious elite here, is that Jesus is a sinner. And that he's worse, actually he's worse, he's a demon-possessed Samaritan, as they called him in chapter 8. And they'd forgotten, these Pharisees had forgotten that centuries, over the centuries and centuries that they had re- been revealed about who God was in his nature, they, had, they, they should have known that it is only God who heals. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4 says this, uh, one of my favorite passages. <clears throat> Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all of his benefits who forgives all your sins and who heals all your diseases. The Pharisees knew this. They, it, it's, it was present in their text, in their scripture, but they decided to ta- toss all that theology out the window when it came to Jesus, even though he was employing the only kind of power that could have been possibly possessed by God to heal, heal this man. And the, and the beggar knows that. You know, I, if, we, if you go back and look at... at what's going on and his realization of his coming to the conclusion about who Jesus is, we see it's a progressive revelation a progressive and a progressive realization of who Jesus is. In verse 11, he calls Jesus, just simply he calls him a man. They asked, who healed you? He said, the man Jesus. In verse 17, he calls him a prophet. 
And then in verse 31, he goes on to imply that Jesus is sinless and that he is actually sent by God. So you can see that this man is coming to terms with who Jesus is over a, over a process. It all happens in one day, but you can see it kind of over the course of the conversation he's having with the Pharisees. And I ask you, does that resonate with you like it does with me? I mean, for some people, if I was to ask them, when you came to Saving Faith in Jesus, they could give you a date, they could give you a time, they can give you the, what the weather was like, they could, they could tell you who the person was that led them to, to faith, and that's all great, and that's glorious, and praise be to God for, for you knowing that. But there's also some of us who, coming to faith in Christ was a process, right? It was over, over time, a realization of who Jesus was over a matter of months, over the matter of years, and it's only looking back that we see the mighty hand of God as he was re- revealing himself to us. So I hope that that is a little bit of encouragement to you uh, as it is for me, realizing that, that it, for, for, for some as we see, look back on our life, it's, it's a process. Um, so we see over that course of those 24 hours for this man, over that process for him, his heart is finally at this moment when he's, when he's interacting with Jesus the second time that his, his heart now is ripe for the question that Jesus poses to him in verse 35. Do you want to know the Son of Man? Do you want to place your trust in the Son of Man? That's the question that Jesus is really asking him. And then we see in the very next verse that he's eager. He's eager to know. that he's, This man is eager to believe, and he's eager to trust in the Son of Man. So he asked Jesus, or he answered Jesus with, a, with another question. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And then in verse 37, it's a great we see that Jesus just completely unmasks himself in front of this man. He unmasks himself in front of all the, the onlookers there. And he says, you have seen him, and he's speaking to you. And it's just, it's there that Jesus' self-disclosure just completely overwhelms the man. So this man goes from complete darkness for much of his life physically, spiritually, and now he's gazing into the eyes, gazing into the face of his healer, of his Lord and, and the God of the universe. And the only response that he can give is that he just falls down and worships Jesus. There's, there's really no more fitting, there's really no more proper, proper response to Jesus' self-revelation to you, to me, to anybody, but worship. So that when you finally see with the eyes of faith, when you finally come to the terms that you can see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ in the gospel, your heart is is completely changed. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, And he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when that happens, we can say, just like the beggar says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And in that moment, when Jesus is showing his disciples, he's showing this man He's showing the pharisaical onlookers the purpose of his mission. Uh, it goes, if we go back to chapter, uh, to verse three and four of the this, of this same chapter, 
Remember that, that verse which says Jesus tells the disciples that the work of God must be accomplished when he says that? So this is the work that God has come, the work of God that Jesus has come to accomplish, and that is to save sinners. And that's, that's the purpose for this man's healing of his blindness. And that's the purpose of every miracle or any healing that we see that happens, that those who are healed, those who witness the healings or miracles, and even those who hear about it, including us today, because we're hearing about it, right? Because we're reading it from the Word of God. That when we see that, our call is to believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. And that's the center of this passage. That's the center of God, John's gospel, as he says. And he summarizes it very well in John 20, 30, 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is the signs and, 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 uh, uh, and all the wonders and the miracles that are happening, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. So physical healing, according to what John's saying here, is not an end in itself. Miracles and physical healing really are actually of, are of no benefit themselves on themselves unless it, it, unless it produces in us repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the true miracle of what's going on in this passage passage this morning, that the beggar's healing was brought to its, its intentional, beautiful, and proper conclusion when he bowed in worship to Jesus Christ. Remember the paralytic man in, 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 in chapter 5? It's a very similar situation that's going on here. We see Jesus in the, going on. Uh, it's, it's FaceTime again, and he is, uh, it's, on, it's on the Sabbath day, just as well like it is here in this passage. And he heals another man, but this man who's, who's uh, paralyzed for 38 years. He's, he's, he's been um, in, in trapped in his body for 38 years. And there's no mud necessary in this, in, this, in this passage, but he just goes up to the man, simply tells him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And, and immediately, he's got full strength in his legs, full strength in his muscles. He gets up, he picks up uh, that, what he has been laying on, his mat, and he gets up and he walks which is absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing happening thing that happens, and, and yet we see in his regard that there's really no indication that in the text to show us that he had any, uh, that he had bowed to Jesus, that he, that he had worshipped Jesus the same way that this man does. There's no, no indication that he even returns for a thank you to Jesus. So, so that's the, and here's the warning from that, that he, here's, here's the uptake, and that is that physical healing in and of itself and, and miraculous signs is not a guarantee that the, that, that the recipient of the healing is going to put his or her trust in the healer, in Jesus Christ. You know, this is true of, any, of addiction as well. There's many people who have, who have, uh, have, come, who have, have worked in hard and they've strained and they eventually conquered some of their phobias or the addictions and so forth, and, and yet they have not trusted Jesus. So it, it's perfectly feasible, it's perfectly possible to come to to change your behavior, to, to, to modify your behavior without even coming close to dealing with the root problem, and that is sin. So, so no, there's no lifestyle, there's no regimen, there's no, nothing that we can, we can do to actually take or even uh, defade that really deep, deep, dark stain of sin that's in our hearts. And I also want to say that 
healing itself is, is also not a reliable measurement for faith either. So neither this blind man in this passage nor the man who was, who was uh, paralytic for 38 years that was healed by Jesus, neither of them were responsible for their healing whatsoever. Right? They didn't deserve their healing and they didn't claim it. They didn't try to call things that are not as though they were, as some people say, which is, by, is not possible for humans to do. Only God can do that, not you or me. So these, these men didn't earn it by faith either. It was simply a gift of compassion by Jesus Christ himself. And this is why I pointed out, because God does still continue to heal today. No doubt about it, right? Amen. God still continues to heal today. And we ought to look for healing. We ought to pray for healing. Um, and it should... But when it occurs, when healing does happen, it should humble us to the point in which we are propelled into worship to Jesus Christ. It should point us back to the gospel that, sa- that, that, that is, uh, it's, as Romans 1 says, that it is the, it is the power of God, that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. That's, what, that's where healing should point us to Jesus, to the gospel. So, in conclusion, what I want to point out is ask the question, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that, as we said in this chapter, that Jesus has found us. Just as he was pursuing this man, Jesus pursues us. When we were at our worst moment, when we were at our darkest moment, when we were in the grip of sin, and, and we were reveling in our darkness and in our sin, and there's no way out, and there's no desire to get out of the pit we were in. And because of it, we were doomed to everlasting destruction. And yet, then, at that moment, at the right time, Jesus came to earth to rescue us from, from sin, to come to rescue us from Satan, and come to rescue us from, from hell. And that the good news is that Jesus then went to the cross, And he suffered in our place the full extent of God's wrath and just judgment towards sin. The wrath that should have been, should have consumed all that was on the earth and laid everything waste, all its inhabitants, was instead absorbed by Jesus Christ himself on the cross. And that there on the cross, we see that God's justice was spent and we see that also God's love was expressed in the same miraculous moment. And that all those who do place their trust and believe in Jesus as the Son of Man, that their punishment for their sin has been already served, has already been atoned for in the, in the, in the glorious atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And by that we are forgiven of sins, by that we are redeemed, and by that we are made righteous. So I asked this morning, if you haven't placed your trust in, in, in Christ, is Jesus seeking you this morning? Is, is he reaching out to you? It, is he revealing himself to you? Is that miraculous atoning work of Jesus Christ resonating in your heart? Is it, is it, is it propelling you to worship Jesus? And then, oh, that it would. I pray this morning that, that we would, you would see Jesus as beautiful, as glorious, and as worthy of praise in worship, if you haven't already come to that moment. I pray that you would that this morning. And for those who already know Jesus, who, who are in faith in Jesus Christ, the, I have a different question, which is, does, does seeing Jesus, does knowing Jesus continue to evoke a response of worship? Is there a growing understanding in, of Jesus Christ and, 
and that translates now to a greater sense and greater depth of worship of Jesus Christ, as, of God? Is there a growing wonder and, and awe of Jesus? Is, are you seeing a, a new glimpse into the glory of Jesus Christ this morning? That, that, and I, I pray that you are, so that Jesus would be seen as glorious and that would propel you to deeper worship and joyful worship of your Savior. We end in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your great and glorious work. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being obedient to the Father by coming in flesh, not, not leaving it a mystery as to who you are, but making it known and making known our sin. And yet you did not leave us just knowing about our sin and in despondency toward you. Instead, you, you made the miraculous work of, of rectifying the problem by going to the cross and dying for our sins. And because of that, we can have a relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that we would see you in a greater light that would cause us to worship you and to love you. And we pray, Lord, that it would change and transform our hearts, that we would go from being blind to seeing you and savoring you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.